Welcome to the Invino Fab podcast. I'm Laura. And I'm Patrice. Invino Fabulum means in wine story. And there are so many tales that need to be told about women from all walks of life and their communities, paired with wine, of course. The Invino Fab pod is a place to learn and a space to share stories about work, interests, passion projects, issues, and random wine facts. On this episode of Invino Fab, we're joined by Lucinda Jackson. She's the author of the memoir, Just a Girl, Growing Up Female and Ambitious, about her struggles to succeed in the male-dominated worlds of the chemicals and energy industries. As a PhD scientist and a global corporate executive, Lucinda spent almost 15 years in academia and Fortune 500 companies. She's published articles, books, chapters, and patents, and is featured on podcasts and radio. She's the founder of Lucinda Jackson Ventures, where she speaks and consults on energy and the environment and empowering women in the workplace. She lives near San Francisco, and you can connect or find her book at lucindajackson.com. So, hi, Lucinda. Thanks so much for joining us today on the podcast. We're really excited to hear a bit more about your story and some of your experiences. And of course, we we have your bio, which we read, but the, the juicy bits that people love to hear about are what's not in your bio. Hi, <laughs> nice to see you guys. Let's see what's not in the bio. Um, it's probably that um, I am one of the most high energy people that you meet and all my friends say, don't you ever slow down and, and, and we can't keep up with you. And my husband says he, he's always walking like uh, five steps behind me. And one of my sons says he spent his whole childhood trying to uh, catch up with me. So that's not in the bio, but it's who I am. And it's, um, it's kind of a curse, but it's also uh Super fun. Where do you get your energy from? So if you want to help us find some of that energy, I think. Well, I sleep really great. And that's a trick. And since you can get your sleep patterns under control, um, I sleep great. I exercise a lot. I love yoga and biking and skiing and surfing and all kinds of stuff. And so um, fresh air and exercise and dealing with your emotional issues. I think it's a real, it took me a long time to do that. But when I finally did, it's just like incredibly freeing. And I think there's no, uh, no time in life that you don't have to do it at some points. And I mean, you keep having things that come up, but dealing with those, I think is a real um, way to free your mind. And then you can, you know, it gives you energy for helping other people and for doing other things. And so that's my trick. <laughs> I think that's really great and important to share with people. And I'm wondering, you know, as you were talking about yoga and biking and some different things and dealing with emotional problems, you know, one of the things I was thinking about was within the context of the pandemic. Do you have any tips for people or apps or different things that you've found helpful during this time when you know, were not as easily able to go out and interact and do things? Well, I got right on Zoom really early. I think I was one of the first users, <laughs> but um, you know, I use it a lot. Great way to connect with people. I've stayed in touch with everybody. Um, so I, and I, and I, I keep a schedule just like I did when I, when we weren't in the pandemic. So um, I, I don't always get dressed. I have to confess that, but I do, um, you know, every day I do just like when I was in the corporate world, I guess I got pretty disciplined. Mm -hmm. And so um and I've always had a fairly free uh, job schedule. So I've just kind of kept that kind of thing. I write stuff down the night before. I know what things I'm going to accomplish. I set goals. 
Um, I do have kind of a, a corporate approach to my life <laughs> and the discipline that I learned in, um, I guess, being a scientist, mm -hmm. uh, a lot of discipline there. And then in the corporate world has helped me through the pandemic in a pretty good way. Mm -hmm. And um, I can stay connected with my kids and I have my husband here, which I'm lucky to have a partner. Um, and I see, you know, I have my pot of friends. So I see my friends that I can get out outdoors with and hike. And that's it. I, I feel really lucky. So I love to hear, because it sounds like you have such a great bridge between science and business and like how you kind of bridge those two things. Like being a scientist is one thing because we all have some PhDs behind our names. Uh, but uh, what does it mean to like go into the corporate sector and go to be a, become a business executive? Were there things that you had to like learn and unlearn? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. It, uh, the business world was extremely challenging. Um, I was, a, you know, I, I'm an environmental scientist. And as you can imagine, those are almost contradictory in a lot of corporations. And I worked in the chemical business and then in the um, oil and gas business. So um, tough areas, very male dominated, not particularly environmental, especially back in the 70s when I started working in those sectors. And um, I, I definitely had to um, shorten up everything I knew and put it in bullet points and make a business case for it. <laughs> there was no just uh, interesting research or um, it was all about, I mean, I still did research my whole career uh, in, in that I, I led a group of researchers. And but we had to always uh, figure out the cost and the benefits for every single thing we did. And it had to fit into the business plan and it had to have returned to the stockholders and it had to fit into all the other projects that people were putting forth to get funding for. So um, way, way, I got way, way more organized and competitive being in the corporate world. Yeah, you always need the business impact or what's the ROI from whatever thing you're studying and doing. Um, that's great. And I wondered, because you have some experiences being at different universities and uh, Fortune 500 companies, there's probably more similarities, and I know there is, than people think, um, and some maybe some pitfalls as well. If you want to share a little bit about that, that'd be great. Uh, yeah, the similarities are, um, I find both realms very exciting, intellectually stimulating, um, with, you know, curiosity, uh, uh, opportunities to make a difference. Those are all things that are really important to me. One thing that's sort of interesting is that I, I definitely did not see any difference is the um, sexism and harassment that I received as an ambitious woman in the science field. And uh, people always ask me that, like, well, wasn't it, you know, better in academia or, but it, it wasn't, it was the same. <laughs> it was the same. And no matter which universities I was at and, and which corporations I worked at, it um, was pretty much the same. And I think a, a lot of them are still coming to grips with how to deal with that. And that's part of what I do now in my current um, career is consult with primarily companies to help them figure out how to make the workplace uh, more friendly towards women because they're losing women. The retention rate is not good and they, and they still can't quite figure out why. Same thing in academia and in science, particularly. I mean, you guys probably kept up in what's happening in academia, but a lot of movement there and a lot more 
Well, I, I started starting to like take people's funding away at universities that that get, get convicted of sexual harassment and sexism crimes and stuff. So it's it's been a very similar um, road in in that way. So you know, not for me, and, and that's one of the key things I focus on because I also work in um, DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion, and um, they all still need help, in my opinion. <laughs> Yeah, I think there's you know, there's so many stories we continue to hear in that realm of women either dropping out or facing sexism. Like you said, it's just as rampant in higher ed as it is in the in the corporate sector. And I know you know you you do some work in that area, and we'd love to hear a little bit more about your story of how you overcame that you know those issues around sexism you know, any advice that you might have for other women and kind of what led up to um, your um, choice and decision to write a book about it? I had no self-esteem growing up and I was raised like a typical girl in the 1950s, which my father told me I should learn how to cook because that's how you get a husband. And, and I, you know, definitely shouldn't be interested in science and my called my high school I was the top student in my high school and the, the counselor told me I should like go to the local community college and uh, major in home economics and and stuff like that so d- definitely not encouraged not you know I, and, I, and I just grew up um, in that way and so when I started looking at um, books you know for that I read about women and self-esteem a, a successful women right a lot of the successful women books were like, um, oh, I had a great supportive father and, oh, I, my, my parents treated me just like they should be my brothers. And if you read books by, you know, all, all of the top, all the top women, it's kind of like that. And, and I just felt like, well, that was not my experience. I had like no self-esteem. And so I ran into a lot of problems and my career was not a, an easy like, oh, I got this, and then I graduated from this, and I went this, because I was harassed by my, my student, my, um, as a student in high school, I was harassed by my major professors. In graduate school, I was harassed by my bosses, and a lot of it had to do with self-esteem, mm-hmm. and a kind of a perfect nexus of a, a, a girl that's why I call the book just a girl because you know I was just a girl and I felt like that I was just a girl and and coming into kind of a perfect storm of women just first entering the workplace showing some ambition men being threatened um, competing you know for their jobs like you're taking I had heard that a lot like you're taking a job away from a man and and things like that and so I wanted to um, write a book for girls and women who don't have all their shit together all the time. (laughs) So my book is, and my life is, um, you know, a constant evaluation and struggle and growth. And, and that's how I think life is. But, but I do strongly believe that, you know, out of struggle comes some fantastic rewards. And I I guess in terms of, um, you know, what I, I tell girls now or younger women or really anybody who wants to hear about it is that the way I, I grew was from one thing was that I just kept showing up 
and I didn't, I had, I would have some horrible, you know, sexual harassment experience at some convention or at, by my boss the night before at a cocktail hour or something. And I would still get up the next morning and go to work. And I just kept showing up. And I do encourage young women, especially in STEM, to not give up, you know, because sometimes they do. They drop out of that computer class or they're tired of being the only the only girl lab assistant. And, and I say, well, you know, please keep going. Please keep showing up every morning. So showing up and, and also working really hard. I mean, that's not a very popular thing to say, but I worked really hard. I was always prepared and I, I, um, I watched and listened a lot. So I practiced how people got the floor, how they kept the floor, how they made their points, how they came across clearly, how they speak forcefully, but not intimidatingly. And I practiced and practiced and, you know, I learned the stuff about how to interject, which, you know, we call interrupting, but I, I've called it interjecting, <laughs> how to interrupt so that you can get your, your, in a nice way to get your voice heard, how to say things like, um, and I, I coach women on how to say, um, take out all the weasel words and say things like, well, I propose blah, blah, blah. Or I have a proposal rather than, well, you know, I have an idea. It's not quite, I don't have a quite half, it's kind of half baked, but you know, I don't know, maybe you'll like it. I don't know. Let me, let me just throw it out there. I mean, people are, you lose them. Right. So I learned, I learned how to show confidence even when I didn't have it. And, and, you know, believe it or not, once you, you fake it till you make it kind of thing, it sort of works. So that was, that was all helpful. That's kind of little tips I give women today on how to deal on day-to-day stuff, that practical stuff that that is easier than just saying, oh, you know, go go get confidence. I mean, you know, how the heck do you do that? It, it's a really gradual process for me. And I guess the, la- the last thing that kind of got me to where I am today is um, when I, I finally started getting my own confidence and then I saw like a, a higher purpose of how I could help um, roles for women in general. Because, mm-hmm. you know, I saw there weren't very many women at, with a seat at the table, at the big table. And I saw what I could do at the big table and how I could be there when somebody was saying, um, no, we can't promote Patrice because, you know, she's on maternity leave. And I, and I could be the one that said, wait, that's not legal. <laughs> and, and yes, we're going to promote her. And, you know, if you're not there, it doesn't happen. So I, I just love helping other women feel their fulfill their full potential. There's so much to unpack here, but I will say you've gone through many decades of it's looked different, the sexism. And sometimes we've said it wasn't around when it was, we just never talked about it until a recent reckoning, um, the Me Too movement brought more of it out. But there has always been subtle ways that women have either shied away from things or let things go. And it's they've shown up, but they've never been at the table, really, or they felt like othered in other ways. And this is women who uh, identify as women, we have transgender women, we have um, minority racialized women, like, I just think about all the ways that um, 
the resilience of doing that work is so hard to do. And I love that you said that it's incremental because it's probably a practice, an ongoing practice in how we do these things. And communication strategies are one, but what are some areas of advice that you offer um, a women you coach or folks you work with? Um, because I think everyone needs to be at the table for some of these issues when it comes to that sexual harassment piece, because I think we've let things slide for so long that this recent reckoning in the last few years have really just opened people's eyes on a number of things. What do you do and what do you say to those folks? Yeah, a lot of women um, still struggle with boundaries. And I certainly did that for a long time. You think like, and I still hear women today saying, oh, well, he so-and-so said this, but he was just kidding. And, and I now say, you know, that wasn't funny. And I'm saying like, you can't, you, you, you can't let those things slide. So I've learned to, to call it all, call everything out. And that's what I try to tell um, women to keep, keep calling it out. And people get, you know, that new term diversity fatigue. And, and a question I get a lot is uh, when I speak is, uh, um, it, hasn't this all been settled? I mean, didn't me too take care of all this? And and I always say, well, you know, once there's a woman president and we have equal pay, yeah, then maybe, <laughs> maybe we can stop. But in the meantime, no. And for for women and, and minorities too, I mean, I also, you know, coached all, all types of minorities, anybody who's been like an only, um, to, to really keep bringing stuff up. I mean, you just, you just have to. And, and as, as people know your boundaries more, um, they'll, they'll, they will stop more. And I, I, as a younger woman, I didn't know how to do that. And I would hee hee laugh and, you know, try to like be friendly and, and it didn't work at all. And so now I call it all out like, eh, nope. And you can do it in good ways. You know, I, I help people figure out how to do it. Uh, without because you know if it's your boss or somebody I mean it's tough it's really tough and it's so easy to say you know to the victim like well you should speak up and I like really like some of the the newer approaches about bystander intervention so um, I also get people asking me like how how can I help with this and and I tell them like bystander intervention is one of the best things that you can do rather than leaving the poor victim to say what you just said was inappropriate and please don't say that to me again if somebody else heard it, they can walk up and say, God, you know, what you, what you say that for? And like shame the person and it really, really helps. It sounds minor, but it's, and there's some great organizations like Hollaback. Um, they have a five step, you know, five, five things you can do um, now to deter sexual harassment. And it's really good. So those things are actually easier in my mind than some of the discrimination that still goes on the, the, sex, the sexual discrimination that, that I, it's not as illegal <laughs> as sexual harassment is, and it's more subtle, you know, not equal pay finding out. I mean, I still, women today, they find out they're not making equal money and um, there's no reason why not and be being denied certain promotions for certain reasons. And it's very subtle. And it's um, and on that side, I just really, coach women to really know, like if you're working in a company or a university, really understand the promotion processes, the ranking processes, the, um, and speak up for yourself. You know, you have to learn to brag 
Yeah, I, I a, a couple of conversations that I've been in recently, some things around that have come up um, around power differential, right? And so, you know, in many cases, you know, women or, you know, whoever it may be are afraid of losing their job, right? Like, like they're concerned if they bring something up or speak up or that, you know, that they might, that that might impact getting that promotion or, you know, their job security or any number of things. And it feels like it's being compounded with a pandemic. And I was just on a webinar last week where it came up that, you know, like women, as we know, are really struggling right now for a number of reasons, caretaking. Um, and they struggle between, you know, like, I want to ask for help, but I'm afraid to ask for help. Like, will people think I'm not capable, that I can't do my job if I ask for help? And also with Zoom, how it's now letting people into our homes. And a question came up, like if I, like if I was looking at Laura right now and she had a baby gate behind her and a little kid was running through the room and in the other window was, you know, a man with no chaos behind him. And I had to like pick between the two of them, you know, like, is that also either, you know, even like unconsciously impacting women as well? Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, there's a there's a lot of good studies right now on, you know, the percentage of women that have lost their jobs during the pandemic and uh, the percent of housework, child care that women have taken on because of the pandemic. So, yeah, it's yeah, I think it's definitely set the equality issues back and it'll you know, all the more reason why I think we have to all continue to be vocal and not pretend it doesn't exist and not be timid about bringing it up. So, yeah, I'm, con- I'm really concerned, too. Yeah, these issues are like not just women's issues. These are humanity's issues. Like that's something we just don't say is it's not just a, a women or those who identify as women. It's, it impacts everything we do in our lives, school, work care, elder care, child, like there's a bunch of things that we wrap in and living in the U.S. now, there's just so many, uh, we realize infrastructures, like I I remember the conversation or there's news that captured teachers saying like, we are like the babysitters because we just don't scaffold what childcare looks like in this country. And we really rely on teachers who are also struggling. And um, the reality is our systems and structures don't really set us up um, I wonder if there's some good examples of organizations or leaders out there that are kind of challenging this with um, this pandemic as a challenge. Are people finding opportunities? Have you heard much? Or what are you learning from f- folks you're speaking to around this issue? Well, some of the positives I've heard are that um, uh, men are taking more uh, responsibility because they've kind of see now what it all entails. And a lot of that's sort of been hidden from a number of men, but when they're home all day, they can see, even if their wife works, she may have been doing more of the pickup for daycare or more of the after-school stuff. And, and so now the males are seeing the whole picture. <laughs> and, um, you know, there's some absolutely wonderful males that are all, you know, have always been right in there doing all this stuff. But I think it's opened up a, um, a little bit of a porthole for some that have not. So I think I think that's very positive. And um, I think because a lot of people don't, you know, it's a great point, Laura, because I don't think a lot of people have 
they don't know what the future is going to look like. So I don't, haven't seen a lot of like preparation. Everybody keeps thinking this is temporary. So I still don't see, you know, and when everybody gets back, we're going to have better daycare or, you know, which is a huge, huge societal issue in my, or we're going to have better medical care or, so I, I'm a bit disappointed that there's not more societal changes. And that's certainly how I look at a lot of this stuff. Just like you said, Laura, the, the, like the harassment of the sexism, it, it affects the whole society. And that's, that's pretty much the view I have. I, in my book, I have a, like a little cycle. I talk about the cycle of, of harassment, discrimination that, you know, starts with parents and goes into schools and academia, um, college, and then into corporations. And we're all, I think we're all responsible. And I think women, you know, hold a a role in making the changes too. What ways do you advocate to break that cycle? Well, um, I start with parents and I talk about raising liberated boys and girls and there's a chapter in there on boy children because I have three boys and um, I was de- determined to raise them to be liberated. And I found it was a huge effort <laughs> in our society. I had to go against society constantly. Um, just even like the pink aisle at Target with all the girl toys, you know, they'd, they'd wander over to the pink aisle and realize there were just girls there and then feel funny. And, and you know, just constantly telling them they could, they could wear a fairy costume for Halloween if they wanted to. I mean, just stuff like that. And there's there was just a lot of things to overcome. So for parents, um, you know, there, there's actually quite a lot for young girls now, um, you know, especially in science. You know, they've been doing a lot of great work in STEM for girls. And so I've more focused on the boys. And that's what I know <laughs> about is, is raising boys to be liberated. Because I still see my sons will tell me about some, you know, friend, you know, friend's father who says, oh, you don't do that. That's women's work and things like that. And the boys, the guys go along with it. And, and so being very, very careful. And, and it's, it's, it's like constant, too. I mean, if you try, really start watching our society and how, how they develop boys and girls, it's still very rampant. So that's one of the things I do with parents. You know, just tell them to pay. You have to fight it. That's what I'm saying. But raising my, I believe my three boys are liberated, and I think they're a wonderful contribution to society. And I wish there were more like them. <laughs> um, so that's like for parents, and then for teachers, um, they're doing better with the teacher thing too. I mean, I definitely think there needs to be more male teachers. Uh, I think education needs to not be a, a woman's um, profession. It still is. And um, more men in the in elementary school, I think, you know, that's something I talk about in my book. And, and then for um, academia, I, there are a lot of systems now for um, anonymous reporting of sexual harassment, which I, I do advocate for both universities and for corporations because you know, so many things are still unreported because people are afraid to report it. You know, you're not going to tell HR because they're going to tell the bosses. <laughs> it's not going to work. And so um, anonymous um, systems and there, there, there's some good systems. I don't know, you know, how we can get everybody to implement them, but I think that would go a long ways. And then, um, and then I just, um, 
I talk to corporations about, you know, the stuff that they can do. And there's a lot in terms of um, training their managers in DEI and in, in a leadership way and how to be inclusive of everybody and to be recognize your biases and um, create um, create workplaces where women want to work. I mean, be aware of the the onlys in your your meetings, even your small meetings, and bring people into the conversation, whether they're different because of their religion or their um, sexuality or their race. Um, I, I'm always aware of those people in meetings because I was one for so many years. So it's and I, you know, there's ways to bring them out. So that's the kind of things I, I help corporations. And, and they're more interested now because of the retention problems. They don't, like I said before, they don't know why they can't keep women in minorities. <laughs> but for, it depends on the industry. But, you know, like the industries I have worked in in energy and chemicals are still very male dominated. And, and there's a, you know, a frat um, type. And the tech companies have adopted a lot of the same, same culture. So it's really interesting thinking about the influence of family and teachers and it it kind of builds into the um, guidance and role models and things like that. And one of the things that I was actually surprised to hear about, and I know you mentioned that it's one of the things that motivated you to share your story is you know, it is very common that, you know, a woman may have a father or a brother or a teacher or somebody that encouraged them to go into engineering or science. And in some of the research that I've done looking at women who did not persist in their undergraduate studies the first time, one of the common themes was that they felt like there was no one there to guide them and that it was more of, well, I was always good in math and science. So I should just be an engineer. So they went to become an engineer. And then when they started to hit barriers or struggle or face, you know, some of the harassment and different things you're talking about, because they didn't have a goal that really aligned with something that they cared deeply about, they, they didn't persist. And so I'd love to hear more about, you know, you talked about how you just kept showing up. And so both hearing about, you know, how did you end up? majoring in engineering, you know, if you did not have, you know, some of those influence along the way. And what do you think it was that enabled you to believe in yourself and to keep showing up? Because I think that's a space that a lot of women struggle with is, you know, having that, that efficacy and belief in themselves that they can be successful. Well, I was particularly motivated because one, my father completely dominated my mother and I saw that and, and saw how ugly that was. For some reason, even though I was like six or seven years old, I saw that and there was some domestic violence and she had no money because she didn't work. And so he ruled everything. And, and I just thought really young, like I, I see that money is power and that because she wouldn't have money, like we'd want something or, and he, she'd say, oh, I have to ask dad. And then he'd say no, and then we couldn't have it. Right. And so I really early, I wanted my own money. And I looked at my parents and I saw my dad, he was an engineer and he was a college professor and he had this big lab and all these students that loved him. And, and he went off in the car and he took the car and my mom didn't have a car. And, 
and we were left at home and, and he played golf after work and had tennis friends and, and my mom was cooking and slaving and <laughs> raising children. And I just looked at the picture and said, I want that one. And so I was very motivated to not have, I call my mom my anti-hero because I, I didn't want what happened to her to happen to me. I just said, I'm not, and I, and I, I, I liked the money. I wanted the money because I saw that if you had your own money, you had more um, ability to make your own choices. So very early, I, th- th- those were my motivations to keep showing up, Patrice. <laughs> you bring up things around power and control and yeah. And money is a big influential piece into that. Right. And so I think about it in, in these boardrooms, so I'm in a tech industry where I would like to have women's and people identify as women's voices at the table, because I think um, too often we just still have it influenced by cis heteronormative males. Like that's really what it is. And I say, this is a white cis woman. And I, I wondering like, what are some things that like maybe organizations, both corporate and higher ed could think about really is um, what really encourages people to be open and willing to have these candid conversations or difficult conversations around um, treatments because sexual harassment is one, but there's also, we've talked about microaggressions and we've talked about just the culture of an org that really influences how people interact and deal with and advocate and persist for themselves. Well, you know, I went through uh, tons of leadership courses and seminars and offsites and stuff as a becoming an executive and they never dealt with um they never trained you in dei stuff yeah and i think that's the i've heard some glimmerings that some of them are going to start having that in their executive leadership programs but instead you learn i mean you learn a ton about budgeting and financing you learn about business planning and you learn about you know getting motivation and stuff like that, that you don't learn about how to really bring out um, the best in people and how to control your own ego so that you're not dominating the room. And, and how, you know, it's just really basic stuff, like how to go around the room and say, well, Patrice, we haven't heard from you yet. What do you think? And, and having leaders who will do that and then colleagues who will do it, you know, instead of setting up a, such a competitive atmosphere and trying to get people to look at the common goals and things like that, that aren't really um, part of capitalism, particularly. <laughs> um, so <clears throat> I think there's so much that could be done. And I, and I think it's just a teaching thing. A lot of people <clears throat> aren't mean. I mean, they just don't know. I found that in the environmental area as an environmental scientist for so many years, most people were pretty open to doing something environmentally correct. They just didn't know. They go, oh, okay, I can do that. They just didn't think about it. And then, as long as you present a case that it's not going to triple your cost or something. But, and I think a lot of it is, you know, let's say unconscious stuff people were raised in. And so I'm optimistic because I think, I think it's learnable. I don't think it's, you know, we're all stuck with just the way we are. But Patrice, you're, you're an engineer. I read you must have had some interesting experiences in your engineering life. Yes. So I, I studied mechanical engineering, I think as an undergraduate, you know, I went to a small school. So, you know, we had a very small class size. There were only a couple of female students. Um, interestingly, I mean, I would say overall, if I think about like my peers, 
like I found them to be very supportive. There were definitely male faculty that were not excited about having women, um, you know, women in uh, their their classes. Um, I had, I would say, mixed experiences as an engineering, you know, like professionally, like there were some men who were just amazingly supportive and they went out of their way to support me and help me and things. And, you know, like back then, um, you know, my manager went out of his way when I had my, uh, my son to, you know, help me get like an extended maternity, you know, you know, different things like that, where I really felt very supportive. But then at that time, you know, for example, I had the opportunity to work part-time for a year after my son was born. There was a lot of resentment around that by, you know, by men. Um, although I would continually remind them that while I'm working part-time, I'm also only getting paid part-time. <laughs> yeah. Right. Um, but, you know, like my shift to, you know, well, I, you know, at that time, like it was very difficult to have a work-life balance in an engineering field. You know, there weren't, you know, there wasn't as much flexibility as I think there is now. And like, you know, a lot of the women's stories that I've heard, a lot of women who are in science, technology, engineering, leave that field and go into education because they want to help the next generation have better educational experiences than they did and really think about like, how can we reimagine education so that more, you know, women and underrepresented students both engage and persist. Yeah. I love what you're doing. That's funny, Patrice. I left education to go help tech the other way around. I was like, I want to go into the field and help the other pipelines of who we're hiring who are Black, Indigenous, people of color. I was like, that's really what I was like. I want to do the opposite. I think there's so much that we can learn. I don't know if there's a resource or something you recommend that our listeners, besides your book, obviously, we're going to recommend uh, just like a girl uh, to everyone to listen and that's listening to read. But is there something else that you recommend they pick up and learn more about this area and this need? Well, one of my favorite books is, um, it's old, but I love it. It's Gloria Steinemann. It's her book, uh, Revolution from Within. And um, it's a wonderful book to read for anybody who wants to build their self-esteem. Because she, she she's always been one of my heroes because she isn't one of those people that had all the support and her father was great. And, you know, she came up more like I did, I guess, you know, from kind of a rougher background and, and um, still made it work. And so she talks about, um, there's a quote, something about like, you're never too old to change your childhood. And, and I, I, I love that, that, that no matter how you were raised or what heck happened to you, you can fix, you know, you can create your own new childhood. And, and get rid of some of that stuff that was in your head about how you're not good enough or how you're, you shouldn't do this. And, and so I find her, that particular book, she's written a bunch, but that revolution from within is about that self-esteem that I started talking about in the beginning. So she's, she's, I've, I've had the opportunity to meet her and talk to her several times. And I, I still am a big fan. <laughs> oh, that's great. That's great. Um, and I know we do always like to ask two questions. One is about wine. And if you have a favorite wine, what you like to drink, any, you know, any story around wine. Um, and if there's, you know, the other question um, that we like to hear about are, is there something, you know, like what brings you joy? 
Well, wine is is a great subject because well, I love wine. But um, about about eight years ago, my my husband and I have always been risk takers, and I'm a risk taker, and I really believe in keep. I mean, I think it keeps things fresh, and you know, if it doesn't work out, well, you t- still you had a cool time and you got a great story, and, and so I'm always like, let's do it, and. Um, we were both working corporate jobs and uh, we said, well, like, wouldn't this be a cool time for one of us to take a risk? And I, and I said, I'll keep my job and I'll supply the health insurance and stuff. And we decided to buy a winery and it seemed so romantic. You know, we were going to like, all we want to drink and have our label all in our minds and stuff. And um, it was uh, really difficult. It's like, we found out that there's really no wineries that are making any money, not off making wine. <laughs> they make them off, well, not now, but they were making them off of wedding events and musical concerts. And, and it's a real drudgery, but it's not a good business. And so the romance of it, um, you know, diminished pretty fast. <laughs> so people tell me like they're thinking about buying a winery. I'm like, are you sure if you looked at the finances? Um, but we had a ton of fun and my husband makes made this fantastic vignette wine, which is a, um, uh, a, a grape that's, um, it's, it's very, it's a varietal, it's very fruity, um, it's aromatic, it's just delicious. And he made it um, kind of for, for us and it was 16% alcohol, which made it even better, <laughs> a little kick to it. And so this vignette is still my favorite wine and I rarely see it in restaurants, but well, I haven't been to a restaurant in a year, but when I go again, I hope they have it on the menu. And it still brings me great joy because he would he for even after we sold the winery, we had a whole stash of it downstairs. We we since I've drunk it all, so I'm out of vignette, but it's my favorite. <laughs> and I guess what brings me joy these days, um, besides my three boys who I talked about, is is the freedom, freedom that I've I've gotten, both the emotional freedom I've learned in my life. This is a a wonderful stage of life for me. I'm, I'm going to be 70 this year and it's like the best ever. I've never been as happy or heavy having as much fun. And I'm emotionally free because I've dealt with a lot of my, you know, childhood, <laughs> my problems, sexual harassment. And, um, and it's just given me um, confidence to just have one adventure after the next. Um, like you did mention, I joined the Peace Corps when I was 66 and, and that was just a kick. You know, it was kind of a disaster, but again, it was um, really interesting. And actually, I'm writing my my my. I just finished writing my second book, and it's about the the time in the Peace Corps and how struggle brings you growth, and how you any stage of life you continue to grow. So, I I love that. Every day, I have just moments of complete contentment that. I didn't used to have when I was younger. <laughs> it's really great. You guys have so much to look forward to. You get better with like fine wine. Um, yeah. I, fine I wine. have a quick question. So any of our listeners that might be struggling with um, sexual harassment, I don't know if there's a resource that besides their own workplaces and therapists and whatnot, is there anything else that you recommend that, that they can learn from or get some um, like hope or ideas to move them forward? Because I think that's a tough topic that I don't want to glean over and I want to ask you about. Yeah, I mentioned it to the Hollaback. Mm-hmm. Um, H-O-L-L-A-B-A-C-K, I think how they spell it. 
Um, I, I really think that's one of the best. And then they have training programs. I took their training programs. They have some free ones online. And then they, they also come into organizations and, and, you know, it's great to hear from somebody else, not from an employee. You could bring them into your, your, whatever organization you have. They do, they're very professional and they do even like a 30 minute thing about how it's, and they don't blame anybody, but they say, here's how everybody can help stop this kind of scourge, you know, our society that's, that's holding everybody back. So um, I, I'd highly recommend them. Great. Thank you. Yes. Thank you guys. Wonderful talking to you. Well, thanks so much. It was great talking with you today as well. To catch the next episode, be sure to subscribe to InVinoFab wherever you get your podcasts. Find us on Twitter and Instagram at InVinoFab and we'll always welcome comments and messages sent by tweet, private message, or email at InVinoFabulum at gmail.com. Cheers. Cheers.